Part 2, The Dream Run. Chapter 6, The Run. Page 77. Out, into the sweeps, into the great places where the land runs to the sky and into the sky until there is no land and there is no sky. Out, into the distance where all lines end and all lines begin into the white line of the ice blink where the mother of wind lives to send down the white death of the northern storms. Out. Into the mother of wind and the father of blue ice. Russell went where there is nothing, into the wide center of everything there is, into the north. His village lay on the northern edge of the tree line. Here and there in small valleys, Nearby, there were scrub spruce, ugly, dwarfed things torn and ripped by the fierce wind. But as the run went north, even these trees vanished to be replaced by small brush and gnarled grass. Snow was scarce, blown, and the landscape looked like something from another planet. Still there is beauty, Russell thought. It was hard to believe the beauty of that torn and forlorn place. The small mountains, large hills really, were sculpted by the wind in shapes of rounded softness and the light. The light was a soft blue-purple during the day, a gentle color that goes into the eyes and becomes part of the mind and goes still deeper and deeper to enter the soul. Soul color is the daylight. As night... At night, Russell knew, often the wind would die and go back to its mother, and the cold would come down from the father of ice and the northern lights would come to dance. They went from red to green and back again, moving across the sky in great pulses of joy, rippling the heavens, pushing the stars back, and were so grand to see that many people believed they were the souls of dead-born children dancing in heaven and playing with balls of grass and leather. Even in the wind, there was beauty to rustle. The wind came from the north in a steady push that made the dogs work evenly, and the wind made the snow move, change into shapes that blended into the light of day and the soft glow from the sky at night. Out. When he'd gone far enough north along the coast to miss the village, Russell headed back to into shore and moved up onto the land in a small gully headed mostly north, but slightly east. He moved into the dark. He ran the dogs out and down, ran them steadily for a full day, 18 hours, letting them find the way. He stood on the sled's runners and moved to get away from what he knew, ran to get away from death sitting on the ice in Ugrik's form. When the first dog started to weave with exhaustion, still pulling, but slipping back and forth as it pulled, he sensed their tiredness in the black night and stopped the team. He had a piece of meat in the sled, deer meat from a leg, and he cut it into six pieces. When he pulled them under an overhanging ledge out of the wind and tipped the sled on its side, he fed them. But they were too tired to eat and slept with the meat between their legs. He didn't know that they could become that tired, and the knowledge frightened him. 
he was north in the open and the dogs wouldn't eat and they were 150 miles to anything. Without the dogs, he would die. Without the dogs, he was nothing. He'd never felt so alone and for a time, fear roared in him. The darkness became an enemy, the cold a killer, the night a ghost from the underworld that would take him down where demons would tear strips off of him. He tried a bite of meat, but he wasn't hungry, not from tiredness. At least he didn't think so. But he knew he wasn't thinking too well, and so he lay down between the two wheel dogs and put them close on either side and took a kind of sleep. Brain rest more than sleep. He closed his eyes and something inside him rested. The darkness came harder and the northern lights danced and he rested. He was not sure how long it might have been, but it was still dark when one of the dogs got up and moved in a circle to find a better resting position. The dog awakened the remainder of the team and they all ate their meat in quiet growls of satisfaction that came from their stomachs through their throats. Small rumbles that could be felt more than heard. When they'd eaten, they'd lay down again, not even pausing to relieve themselves. And Russell let them stay down for all of that long night. He dozed now with his eyes open, still between the two wheel dogs, until the light came briefly. Then he stood and stretched, feeling the stiffness. The dogs didn't get up, and he had to go to the line and lift them. They shook hard to loosen their muscles and drop the tightness of sleeping long. Up now, out, out. They started north again, into a land that Russell did not know. At first, the dogs ran poorly, raggedly, hating it. But inside half a mile, they had settled into their stride and were a working team once more but they had lost weight. In the long run, they had lost much weight and it was necessary for Russell to make meat. He didn't know how long they could go without meat, but he didn't think it could be long. He had to hunt. If he did not get meat, the dogs would go down and he was nothing without the dogs. He had to get food for them. The light ended the dark fears, but did not bring much warmth. Only the top edge of the sun slipped into view above the horizon so there was no heat from it. To get his body warm again, after the long night of being still, he held onto the sled and ran between the runners. He would run until his breath grew short, then jump on and catch his wind, then run again. It took a few miles to get him warm, and as, it, as, he, as soon as he was, the great hole of hunger opened in his stomach and he nearly fell off the sled. The hunger lasted until he remembered the small piece of meat he hadn't eaten the night before. He found it in the inside pouch of his parka and ate it. His body heat had thawed the meat and made it soft enough to chew. It was bad meat, tough meat, but it tasted so good that it made his jaws ache. And with that meat came energy. It rippled through him, up through his stomach like something alive, something hot. The meat brought strength into his legs and arms and made his eyes sharp. He scanned the hills ahead, the low round hills with grassy sides and small gullies between. That would be where he'd find game. The birds would be on the hillside where there was no snow to eat, but close to the snow so they could fly to the white for protection. The rabbits would be high so they could see when the wolves came. There would be mice in the grass if nothing else. All food. He headed for the hills and reached into the sled for the bow. When he had it out, he stopped the dogs and strung it, 
marveling again at its beauty, the laminating strips of horn and bone and wood shining in the light. He took the quiver up and strapped it over his shoulder, letting the dogs run again as he worked. He would hunt with the team rather than stalk and hope to get close enough for some for a shot. And now there was luck. In many of the hills there were smaller animals, rabbits and ptarmigan, some small fox, which had a sweet, sweet, rich meat and were easy to kill, and the ever-present mice or lemmings. But sometimes herds of caribou numbering several hundred head moved across the land, taking the grass where they could find it. Such a herd lay in the gully in front of Russell and the dogs. The only way out for the caribou was to run over the team or around it. The gully had steep sides with large drifts and the deer had foolishly cornered themselves. A pack of wolves could get into them and take many of them down before they could escape. Or a man could take them, but the deer would only think of running, nor not where they could run, just so that they could run in blind lines. The dogs smelled them before Russell saw them. They had seen him take the bow out, and they knew he was ready to kill, and when they smelled the deer, they turned off and headed for the gully where the herd grazed. There were about 150 deer within the confines of the drifts, and when the animals at the outside edge saw the dogs coming, they wheeled and tried to beat Russell to the opening. But the dogs were strong and thin and fast, and they caught the deer easily. When they ran toward them, toward him into the narrowest part, Russell jumped off the sled and got ready. The dogs kept going crazy now for the smell of deer and the wild running of the herd as it came at them. The caribou parted around the sled and the dogs wheeled around to catch them, missing most, hitting a few with the ancient hamstring tear that ripped and crippled the deer's back leg. And four of these, staggering with bloody back legs, came by Russell. Falling, running, they tried to keep up with the other deer, but they were doomed now, as doomed as they had been hit by wolves, and the dogs were working to catch them and pull them down. Russell took them with arrows, putting a shaft in each one, just in the back of the shoulders. He watched the arrows streak into one, into the light and enter the deer cleanly. First one, then the other, then the next two. And they ran, fell for another 50 yards before they went down, blood spraying from their mouths onto the grass and snow. My arrows are true, he said aloud. And then a poem song. They brought the deer down. They helped the dogs to bring us meat. My arrows are true. The dogs were on the deer now, stopping with the first one. Russell ran over to it to hasten the death by cutting its throat, but he didn't have to. The eyes were already glazing at the end, and he put grass in the deer's mouth, doing the same for the second, third, and fourth ones, which were already dead. Then he pulled the dogs off and tied them away from the four carcasses. There would be food for them, but all in good time. He would set up camp and he would skin the deer out and cut the meat for easy carrying. Then he would eat and eat, he thought, and after he ate, he would sleep and then eat more. He'd never been so hungry and he could see that the dogs were the same. They were in the edge of eating each other, fresh with the blood smell and tough with the running. He set up camp and skinned the deer. By now it was getting dark and he cut front shoulder meat for the dogs, a great piece for each, and took a fatty tenderloin from one deer for himself. He used some grass and dried sticks and a match from his sled bag to start a fire, and he warmed the meat over the flames until it was pleasant. 
Not hot, just heated. Then he took a chunk in his mouth and bit down and cut it off by his lips with the ulu. Wolfed it down, then another, and another, until his stomach hurt with the meat. He mourned not having a pot, but ate snow for water, and this, with the blood and the warm meat, was enough moisture to help in digestion. With his stomach full, he put one deer skin on the ground, hair side down, and the other three on top with the raw sides touching. In between the layers, he had a fur sleeping bag, as warm as the warmest down, and he crawled in as the short-lived sun bobbed back down for the long night. Full-bellied dogs curled into balls in their harness, sleeping next to him. Russell pulled his head under the skin, took his parka and pants off and put them outside, inside out. The moisture from his perspiration would freeze during the sleep and he would scrape the ice off in the morning. With only his squirrel parka on, he pulled back into the skins, took his mukluks off, and left them inside the sleeping bag to warm up and dry out. It was a home. The sled, the dogs, the food, and more food to eat when he awakened. It was a home. And as much of a home as his people had had for thousands of years, and he was content. He closed his eyes and heard the wind gently sighing past the hides that kept him warm and snug. It was a home, and he let his mind circle and go down, the same way a dog will circle and go down, taking the right bed. What a thing, he thought. What a thing it is to have meat, and be warm, and have a full belly. What a thing of joy. And he slept. And while he slept, he had a dream. <laughs>